You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. co-pastors here, pronouns he, him, his, and we are starting a new series called Coming Home with the theme of us leading up to our anniversary, which will be on September 18th, celebrating 10 years. Yeah. So over the next few weeks, we'll be talking about what, is, what does it look like to be a, a progressive Christian community? What have been the mile markers and things that have defined what it looks like for many of us to come home and find and redefine and redefine again over and over again? What is home when we um, are rediscovering that in a, in a church setting? And so we encourage you to sort of be a part of this series over the next few weeks. Um, today, uh, I want us to sort of, uh, in many ways, this will feel like part two to last week's sermon about the idea of, we talked about, many of us have been ordered, our life has been placed in sort of order by other people, and then there's a point in our lives when many of us, our life becomes disordered, and then there's an invitation to reorder our lives. And so, for me, in my reordering time, um, I shared last week that I had found this church in Kalamazoo, Michigan, that became the place where I just spent a year not really, I wasn't pastoring, I was just being. I wasn't serving. I went to church when I felt like it. And it was the very first time in my life I allowed myself to just do that, to not feel forced to do something. And I really owned my faith in that season, in that time. And that church that I found, I found um, uh, just within the first week of moving to Kalamazoo, Michigan. I had moved there for a boy. Who, and he was a boy compared to me because he, he was like 18 and I was 24. I was just fresh out of the closet. Yeah, fresh out of the closet. So was he. Worked, worked, out, worked out great. Until he called me on the drive there and broke up with me as I was driving the U-Haul there. Yeah, so the thing that took me to Kalamazoo, Michigan, also, can I just say, messy, right? Like super messy. And, and, and I was just like, okay, this thing that I'm like coming to Kalamazoo, Michigan for like, it doesn't exist. Like, why am I coming here? Why did I come here? Why did I make this decision? This is crazy. This is insane. What was I thinking? And I got there, and I drove past this church that had a sign out front that said, Messy Progressive Religion. <laughs> Sunnyside United Methodist Church. And I thought, I bet those people would take me. <laughs> and so I darkened the door of that sanctuary the next Sunday, and they had a beautiful rainbow flag, and the pastor greeted me, and I thought, I feel like I'm safe here. I feel like I could... I could call this home. And over the next year, I made that place home. Honestly, the, the messy progressive religion church sign is what got me in the door, but what kept me was the ways in which they owned the fact that they were messy and progressive and that that was a beautiful thing. That's what kept me there. What I mean by that is they were, they were progressive and they, because the, and they were messy because most people in the church were often left to feel very uncomfortable because there was no normal. Most people in the church, they were there because of shared values, not necessarily shared belief systems. And so underneath a banner of shared values was a variety of different beliefs, traditions, and expressions. And honestly, I remember the first time I preached there, somebody said to me, you didn't grow up Methodist, did you? 
And I'm like, well, why would you say that? And they said, well, you said the Holy Spirit three times, and you, pa- and you paced a lot, and you talked about loving Jesus. And, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I didn't grow up Methodist. And then the pastor said, but we're so glad that he's here because he gets to bring us something from his traditions that we Methodists don't have. It was a beautiful space to be and to be coming home to and to call home. It was a place where I first learned that God was genderful instead of genderless or just a God, or just a God uh, who identifies as a male, but that there was no standard language for God, but that each of us at different seasons and points of our life need different metaphors and names and examples for who God is. And it's all throughout scripture. I've totally missed it prior to coming and being a part of this community. There... There, in, the, in this community of faith, I also found that it was totally okay um, to misgender someone as long as you owned it, and you were okay with being corrected when you did that, and to be able to apologize, ask for grace, and move forward, and to continue to try to see people in all of the different varieties and ways that they were expressed in that church. I, I was a f- first church in space that I was able to live with mystery and questions instead of certainty and answers. And coming out of fundamentalism, I really, really wanted certainty and answers. I just wanted progressive certainty and answers. <laughs> and I had to learn that, no, that's actually just as extreme on the other side. To become a fundamentalist liberal is just as bad as the fundamentalist conservative. And I actually just, that problem that I have is that I want fundamentalism, and that's not actually healthy in the end at all. <laughs> I learned in this space what it looked like to not just be a church that claimed to not be racist, but a church that actually claimed to be anti-racist. And to be actively working. Because anybody can say, well, I'm not a racist. I mean, right? That's like the the worst thing to be called. But reality is is we all have racism uh, or prejudice inside of us. And depending on who we are, uh, if we're white folk, we also then have this system in the world that supports us, which is why we then are inherently racist. And so I learned about this for the first time. And this was transformational and eye-opening. But it was also interesting to learn about um, going through anti-racism anti-racisms in this in this church, the church also went through an anti-racism audit, and what came back from the audit was that the church was only as diverse as the white people allowed the church to be. That as soon as white people become uncomfortable with the diversity, that all of a sudden, okay, well that's too far. And so the church has done deep work to be able to figure out what it would it look like for white people not to be the ones who determine what the diversity looks like. Just because there are people of color in the pews does not mean your church is diverse. This was a church where I learned what coming home meant like and what messy progressive religion could be and that it could actually be something really beautiful. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that Christianity isn't progressive, but if they did, it's just because they're either lying or they're misinformed. And if anyone ever told you that Christianity hasn't always and forever been messy, they're either lying or they're misinformed. Because all throughout our Christian history and traditions, it has always been progressing throughout time, and it has always been super freaking messy as it did it. Look at this um, image that I I created to help us sort of see this, uh, this sort of like this change in thought or this flow in thought or diversity of points throughout scripture on thought. So look at this journey through Judeo-Christianity. We start with this commission to be fruitful and multiply the earth. Then we come to Adam and Eve who estranged themselves from God. God provides then a sacrifice for Abraham, which is, is very interesting to think about, right? That during the, on, in that time in history, the idea that God would provide a sacrifice on behalf of the people would have been mind-boggling. People provide sacrifices to gods at that time. Not just Yahweh, but, any, but many gods. This wasn't just a Christian or, Ju- I mean, or a Judeo belief. And so the fact that 
that, how that would have been heard on those hearers, that like God provided a sacrifice for mere humans, that God would provide, God would show up, mind-boggling for the hearers of that time. That then look at this, then there's sort of this shift, right? Because they're estranged from God, and so there's this suffering that exists in the world, and so there's this belief that suffering can be prevented by creating the law and following the Ten Commandments. And if we follow these, then suffering will be alleviated. But reality is, as we know, that does not exactly work. We also see the sacrificial system is established, right? This idea that, well, maybe if we could appease God or we could appease the gods by offering sacrifices and showing how sorry we are for the terrible decisions and things we've done, maybe then God will send rain on the field. Maybe then God will will, will give me a child in my barren tummy. Maybe then God will not allow us to be sick. If we can sort of offer these sacrifices to God, we'll appease God, and then good things will happen to us. It's this belief then, right, and you see this in, 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 throughout the Torah, that suffering happens to bad people. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You do bad things, bad things happen. The Jews often always thought, well, the reason we're in exile, the reason we're in pain is why? Is because we did something wrong. We need to repent, return back, and God will give us the land. It's this deep belief that if we do something bad, then bad things will happen. But then there's this other idea, right, that suffering just happens. It's Ecclesiastes. It's just like, you know what? Who knows why any of these things happen? Just eat, drinks, have sex, and get married. Like, it's fine. Like, just live your life, Ecclesiastes says. There are no answers for all of these. But then the book of Job pushes against all of this as well. Because when Job and his whole life falls apart, everyone's like, well, clearly you did something wrong. That's how this works. You do something bad, something bad happens to you. And Job's like, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I didn't do anything bad to lose everything. This does not work. And so then the idea comes, right, in, the, in this sort of like um, this literature that maybe sometimes bad things happen because God's testing us. Introduce this idea. We don't actually believe, many of us in Christian tradition, even in some evangelical spaces, that Job is a literal story, but instead is more of a parable story to get to the meaning of something. And so here's introducing another idea. Ooh, well, maybe bad things don't just happen because of bad things, bad people, but be for testing. And then we get to the prophets. And the prophets begin to say, okay, well, there's all this suffering in the world. Perhaps, 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 God is going to send us a deliverer from this suffering. A deliverer from all this pain enters Jesus onto the scene. Jesus comes, and Jesus doesn't exactly do what they anticipated. Instead of necessarily delivering them in the ways that they thought, instead, Jesus suffers at our hands. But also, Jesus suffers with us. So that as we suffer, we worship a God and we seek comfort from a God who knows what it's like to suffer. And not just a God who is far off and distant, but a God who walks with us through the same suffering and the same pain and knows what it's like to live in the flesh. A God who is with us, not just a God who is far off. Introducing a whole new radical idea, which eventually forms what we now know as Christianity. But then what's even more interesting is people think, okay, well, well, he resurrects, right? And that will alleviate all the suffering in the world now because he resurrects and that's it. And now the suffering is going to be alleviated. God is going to rush in and make everything right again. And God says, plot twist. Actually, the way I'm going to solve this is I'm going to call you to alleviate the suffering in the world. And so the story begins with be fruitful and multiply the earth. But in the New Testament, it ends with be fruitful and multiply the kingdom of heaven. See that the values of the kingdom of heaven are brought upon the earth. The earth has lots of people. Now bring those values. Bring the kingdom to the earth. And the Holy Spirit who is inside of you, I will do this work through you because I as one human, Jesus on the earth, could never do the great work that all of you together with me inside of you could do. The whole mission changed. You see how this progresses? You see how this changes? Do you see how messy this is? 
It's this beautiful Christian tradition that we're a part of, of being progressively changing, working through different viewpoints and ideas throughout Scripture. 500 years ago, though, Luther decided that maybe the Catholic Church didn't have some things quite like he thought that they should. The Catholic Church believed that you were made right with God or you were in right relationship with God by works. And Luther said, well, I don't know about that. I feel like we should be made right in relationship with God by grace and grace alone. And so he, all of a sudden, he has other, many other things that he's concerned about. And he, he sort of tries to reform and progress the Catholic Church forward. In the end, they push him out. And now we have what we know as Protestantism. And you and I get to sit in these seats today and have a version of Protestantism because Christianity progressed 500 years ago to a different point in a different place in a different way. And that's why we say that we are ushering in the next 500 years because we are now at the next precipice of another shift in Christian history and time to redefine this progression of this faith. It's fascinating to think about the ways in which we are able to glean wisdom from those who've come before us, how we get to continue to build upon those who've come before us and who have been messy and progressing in their thought and changing over time. But today I want us to look just at one particular story that I think is really beautiful and messy and progressive all in the same way as we glean from our ancient ancestors some wisdom. Um, and that's in the book of, of Acts chapter 15. The story of Paul and Barnabas, uh, they were sharing a sort of progressive message of Jesus. And yes, I'm saying a progressive message of Jesus because on the ears of early Jewish listeners, they, to follow Jesus would have been a progression in their faith out of Judaism or out of certain practices of Judaism to believe that the Messiah had come. So there, this is a progressive message upon their ears. While sharing this, this message, though, there's always that person, you know? There's always that. You talk about family being messy. There's always that uncle or that aunt or that just like stuck-up cousin who just thinks they have it all together, whatever it is, right? And they're like, well, I don't know about that. Let me, let me tell you what the Bible says, right? And I'm like, well, no, 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 you're telling me what you think the Bible says. Let's just revisit that for a moment. And so they're all together, they're preaching the gospel, and, and, and it's, this is what it says. In Acts chapter 15, verse 1, there's that person. Certain people, it says, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. Basically saying, if you're going to convert to follow Jesus, then you actually need to also follow the Jewish laws and customs, even though you're Gentiles and this isn't your normal practice. I, I kind of hear this and I think about it for a moment. I bet that I sort of picture these, these new Jewish converts to Christianity sort of like in the middle of deconstruction of their faith. They found Jesus... They're following Jesus, but they've still got all these other traditions and interpretations from their past. And they're really not sure what they're supposed to let go of as they embrace this new thing. And so they just kind of, they just kind of added Jesus in, like a little extra sugar into the, into, the, into the recipe. But they haven't really sort of adjusted what is going on and what's actually be, they're thinking about what they're doing. They're not actually rethinking their former beliefs. They're just doing what they did before, but a little more Jesus into it. And so they're in this process of deconstruction and there's all this sort of like rebuilding and reordering that needs to go on. They need to figure out what do, I, what do we need to let go in order to be able to fully embrace this new idea, this new concept, this, this, this new liberation that Jesus brought. Because Jesus isn't just some example, but Jesus, is, Jesus as we taught last week, he, he often always said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And when the but I say to you part happens, it usually means let go of this other thing and embrace this new thing I'm saying. They were having a hard time letting go of the old thing and embracing the new thing. And so this is what happens in verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Ever been there with somebody who's like, well, I ain't got to tell you how this really works. 
So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Verse 5, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, No, 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 the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Do you feel the tension here? Do you feel the messiness? Do you feel that this is a pivotal moment? If they make the wrong decision, those of us in this room who do not have any Jewish, or, uh, Jewish background, we, would, we wouldn't get to be able to be Christians without following all of the Jewish laws of being circumcised. Everything could have been different. And in many ways, many of us who are oppressed people groups likely would not have ever been liberated. This so much hangs on this moment, on, the, on this, uh, this change, this shift in tradition and scripture and their understanding. Really, I think in many ways that these, these Jewish believers who wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses in order to be true Christians, I think they, in essence, wanted them, they wanted them to be Christians, but they wanted them to be Christians in the most Jewish way possible. What, what I think about when I think about this is I remember I was, the last church that I was pastoring back in Illinois, I could often remember that there would be this tension that, I, that would exist between me and one of my parishioners. When I was first hired, he voted against my hire because he just didn't feel comfortable with a gay pastor. And one Sunday he told me, he said, Josh, it seems like every sermon you talk about something gay. And I said, really? I actually, like, when I write my sermons, I try not to talk about gay things all the time. Like, I really, I try not, because I don't want to be known as that, like, the guy who just, like, everything is gay in his sermon. And so I, I really try hard not to. I said, could you do me a favor? Could you tally and write down every time you think I say something gay? And he's like, sure, please, I'll, gladly, I would love to do that. So I'd see him in the back corner. And then one Sunday he brought to me the report. And, and I said, okay, let's walk through this report. And basically any time that I even mentioned the word LGBTQ, like amongst marginalized people groups, that counted as gay. If I so as much mentioned the time when I had to, if I said, well, you know, before I had to reconcile my faith and sexuality, I believe this, and just about something completely separate theologically, because I said the word sexuality in there, something gay. If I so as much told a story about a relationship I had been in, or I told a story about that had gay characters or couples in it, but it had nothing to do with them being gay. They were just gay couples. You know, they were just living their lives gay. And I remember being like, hold on, just like existing, like that just counts against the, 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 in the sermon? This is mind-boggling. And then one Sunday he came up to me and he said, it was Pride Sunday. The church wasn't doing anything to celebrate Pride. So I decided that I was going to hang a rainbow stole on the pulpit and my rainbow shirt. And he said to me after church, he said, do you have to wear that shirt? It's so in our face. He said, for those of us who aren't really sure what we think about this sexuality thing, it's really in our face. And I took a deep breath, and I said, come, Holy Spirit, come. <laughs> and I said, you know, Steve, I'm single right now. And you, you, this church hired me as a single man. And I am one of the few marginalized people groups that I get to hide away my marginalization and put it on a shelf if I want to. And so I get to get up there every Sunday, and you can just pretend that you have a white straight pastor as long as I don't talk about anything gay or wear a rainbow shirt. I said, but there will be a day when I will stand on the front row of the pew of this church, and I will hold my husband's hand as I sing these songs, and I will kiss my child's head on their forehead, and that will be the gayest thing you've ever seen. And if you can't handle this t-shirt, you're not going to be able to handle that, Steve. <laughs> and then I remember saying, Steve, it sounds like you want me to be the straightest pastor, the gayest pastor 
in the straightest way I could be it. I said, and I can't be. All I can be is me. And I think that when I hear this story, that is exactly what I see the early church saying. They want uniformity over, un over unity, and they want to sacrifice diversity for it. They want people to conform, to look just like, and believe like, and act like them in order to exist in that space. And I'm sorry, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. And so the story continues here in verse 6. Let's see how they respond, because it appears that Paul and Barnabas agree that that is unacceptable to expect people to conform and all look the same to their extraditions and their expectations and their prejudices and their boundaries. And so in verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice amongst you and the Gentiles that they might hear from the lips of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. Basically, they have the Holy Spirit just like you and I do. Why do you think that you're any better? Because you were circumcised? Verse 9, he did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Verse 10, now then, why do you try, the, try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither I nor our ancestors have ever been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as we are. Now, I could preach another 20 minutes on that, but I won't. But to me, what I love here is he's saying, listen, you need to let go of those traditions because they never actually made you feel right with God, did they? And this is why you embrace Jesus. Because no matter how good you thought you could be, you never, you never really felt good enough. And no matter how bad you were, you never really felt loved because you always felt like God couldn't look at you because you're so bad. Why don't you just do away with all that? Why would you want to put that on anyone else? Why don't you just let people know that they are loved by God because they were created by God? That's all. Hard stop. Period. Done. Finished. Story's over. And so the story ends with this, verse 19. As the council meets, and they've had this long debate and messy discussion of how they're going to progress through this faith, it says, is, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Thank you for not making it difficult for this Gentile to turn to God. There were so many Christians who tried, though. So many Christians who made it hard for me to stay in the faith but I am grateful that we are a messy, progressive faith that makes space for people and makes it easy for them to be a part of this faith. Yes. Amen? Amen? So no circumcision for the Gentiles. And I just want to say that this guy probably... was really upset as he's laying in his bed recovering. Really upset. Seriously, guys, seriously. You couldn't have passed this legislation just like 24 hours ago. Not happy. Not happy guy. Not a happy guy. May, we may have lost him after this. He might have been like, I just, this is too messy for me. I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm done. Paul and Barnabas, they had to get, they, after all of this happened and all this played out, the end of the chapter of his story, they, they, they get to this great resolution, everything's hunky-dory, wonderful, right? Probably not. There's probably still people who are like, no, this is what we expect. 
But as a whole, the church went in this direction where they didn't expect uh, followers of Christ to conform. But Paul and Barnabas, at the end of this story, they get into this huge fight over this small little thing, and then they have this huge breakup, and they go separate ways. And it's all because Barnabas wanted to bring Mark on their missionary journey, and Paul was like, I don't want to bring him. I don't want to bring him on our trip. He's caused, he caused problems on the last trip. Literally, that's what it says, right? He caused problems on the last trip. And so they had this huge argument, and they're like, fine, then we're not, I'm not going with you. Well, I'm not going with you then. And Barnabas and Mark go off, and they do their own thing in the next city to spread the love of Jesus, and Paul goes off by himself to another city. Messy. Messy. Not perfect, not tight, not neat, not without dif- disagreement, not without differences. Messy. And guess what? We have always been a part of that faith. Always. And so church, I call us this morning now to think about this rich, progressive Christian, Judeo-Christian traditions that we've been a part of, who progressed in their beliefs and traditions and, their, and, and had new experiences and new reasonings that, that changed and broke down differences and prejudices. You are part of a rich tradition of faith that has always been messy and always will be messy because anytime you gather a group of people of different races, faith traditions, sexuality, social economic statuses, ability, age, all together in a space, it's gonna be messy. This is why many churches in the United States basically are gathered with a bunch of clones all in their own little groups. Not this church. We aren't going to be that church. Because that's not the messy progressive church God's called us to be. The church has done incredible things over the last 2,000 plus years. And I think we need to worry less about restricting people and find out how is it that we can bring the values of the kingdom of God to earth. Over the last 2,000 years, we created the, orphanage, uh, the orphan and foster care system. We created the hospital system. We created institutions like education, systems that we saw a need in the world, and we said, I'm going to create a solution to that. And instead, the church is so bored now that they're finding ways to take people's rights instead of finding ways to provide institutions and systems that could liberate and serve and heal people. The church of the next 500 years, let us progress to a place where we can liberate again, where we can find solutions instead of be the problem. Let us be a people who can instill values that progress, not oppress. What does the church need to dismantle next? Racism. That's my hairball. Because I so as much choke on it when I say it. We as the church need to do this work. The same book that was used to oppress women and people of color and gay folks, it is the same book that has also been used to liberate them. The same book that was used by slave owners is the same book that was used to make the argument from abolitionists. This book can be used for good or it can be used for evil. And that is part of our messy progressive history. So church, I invite you now. The church of Jesus Christ has always been progressing, changing, adapting, and super freaking messy. But even in the midst of the mess, some really beautiful things have been born when we allow ourselves to embrace and progress.
Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.